0: So, I'll begin with the word of prayer and then we'll get started. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for coming. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the faithful men and women who have served you down through the centuries. We thank you for them. We thank you for how they have faithfully preserved your word. They've faithfully instructed us in your doctrines and in your way of life that you have given. We ask that you would help us to pass that on, to encourage and strengthen one another, especially those who are new in the faith. And we ask that you would use the Bible study this evening to that end. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we're going to continue in church history. We're going to look at the Church Fathers, Part 3. This is a particularly enjoyable lesson to me because... um, I get to talk about two of my favorite church fathers, Polycarp and Irenaeus. So Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John, and then Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. So we have this this clearly defined sequence here. And with Polycarp we're only one generation removed from the apostles with Irenaeus were only two generations removed. I showed you this sequence before when I was in the book of Revelation, talking about the millennial kingdom, the millennium in Revelation 20. And I talked about how Irenaeus who was only two generations removed from the apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation told us that we should understand chapter 20 about the millennium literally. We should take it literally. So I find that much more reliable, the witness that Irenaeus gave, than the ideas of Augustine in the fourth century, telling us that uh, we need to think differently and redefine it. No, I I think that Irenaeus had it right. So these are the two men we're going to talk about this evening, Polycarp and Irenaeus. Polycarp is believed to have been the last church father to have been personally instructed by an apostle, Apostle John. While being transported to Rome for execution, we we learned about this in the, the first lesson of the church fathers, when we talked about Ignatius of Antioch, So while being transported to Rome for execution, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, was ministered to by the recently appointed Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was just a young man at that time. Most of the letters Ignatius wrote in route to martyrdom while he was being transported to Rome were to churches. But one was to an individual, the man who had befriended him polycarp one of polycarp's letters also survives to our day polycarp's letter to the philippians written about ad 110 is perhaps the best document from the age of the apostolic fathers these are the father the church fathers who succeeded the apostles first there was the the apostles then the next generation is called the apostolic fathers so it's one of the best documents from the age of the apostolic fathers for giving us a feeling of what typical mainstream Christianity was like in this period. Polycarp's letter was mostly made up of quotations from the New Testament. He warned the Polyvians against departing from apostolic doctrine, and especially against the heresy of Docetism. He also exhorted them to live upright Christian lives, admonishing them against the sin of greed and urged them on them the duty of submitting to their elders. Here is Irenaeus' account of Polycarp. So I told you that Polycarp was a, was a disciple of John, Apostle John, and then Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. And Irenaeus is giving us his, his recollections of Polycarp, who he started listening to when he was a youth. I can tell you, I can tell the very place in which the blessed Polycarp used to sit when he preached his sermons, how he came in and went out, the manner of his life, what he looked like, the sermons he delivered to the people and how he used to report his association with John and the others who had seen the Lord, how he would relate their words and the things concerning the Lord he had heard from them about his miracles and teachings. Polycarp had received all this from eyewitnesses of the word of life and related all these things in accordance with the scriptures. I listened eagerly to these things at the time by God's mercy, which was bestowed upon me. And I made notes of them, not on paper, but in my heart and constantly by the grace of God, I meditate on them faithfully. Polycarp died as a martyr In AD 156, the eyewitness account of his martyrdom is one of the most famous that has come down to us from the early church. Renounce Christ, demanded the Roman governor. For 86 years, I have been his servant, Holy Carpenter, and he has never done me any any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp was then tied to a wooden stake and put to death. The early church had high regard for its martyrs. It saw them as Christians who had most fully followed their Lord by being informed to his death. The church treated the dead body of a martyr, or what was left of it, with special respect and tenderness. After the martyrdom of Polycarp, the Christians of Smyrna took care to preserve his physical remains. We gathered his bones, which are more valuable than precious stones and finer than purest gold, and we laid them in a suitable place where the Lord will come us to meet together in gladness and joy to celebrate the birthday of his martyrdom. In the early church, the uh, the day that one of the one of their members was martyred was referred to as his birthday. The Smyrnian believers would hold a special religious service every year on the day Polycarp was put to death to treasure in their hearts the memory of their great bishop and martyr. But it is extremely important to understand what is not happening here. We cannot read relic veneration into the treatment of Polycarp's remains by the church at Smyrna. In the early church, the proper treatment of the remains of a martyr was to dress them for the grave and bury them underground. In the early church, the very idea of wrapping up martyrs to keep their remains for personal or liturgical use was abhorrent. An early church leader named Anthony explained that it was offensive, unholy, and unlawful to do so. Despite the value of the bones to the collective memory of the church or for the inspiration of future martyrs, they were not to be kept as relics, for to do so, as Anthony said, was a great dishonor to them. Polycarp's bones were buried, not kept at the church in Smyrna for annual exposition. The annual Commemoration of his martyrdom was held at his tomb. The cult of relics, which attributed miraculous healing power to them, to, to the relics, did not come along until later, late fourth century and after. The early church did not practice the veneration of relics as the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches do today. This is a a photo of a clergyman uh, exhibiting the arm of Polycarp, it's it's believed to be the arm of Polycarp, uh, at at the Eastern Orthodox Church where the arm of Polycarp is held today. But that is a much later practice. That was not done in the early church. Now we move on to Irenaeus of Lyon. The church father, Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon in southern Gaul, what is today France, was one of those orthodox defenders of an orthodox Jesus. The Jesus he presented was a Jesus that evangelical Christians would recognize today, he was the son of God who came in the flesh to save humankind from the sin of Adam. Irenaeus lived at a strategic time when false interpretations of Jesus were everywhere. Various sects claimed to own Jesus' true legacy. He was susceptible to a variety of interpretations. Some claimed that he was a magician, guru, angel, or prophet. At the time, it was not at all obvious whose view would eventually win. Amid this cacophony of voices, Irenaeus sounded the note that would eventually drown out the rest. Church historians recognize him as one of the major contributors to the emergence of a unified Christianity. One scholar writes, the second century was the century for the construction of Christian identity. One of the principal architects of that identity was Irenaeus of Lyon. His work shaped the scriptures, the exegesis, the theology, the institutions, and the spirituality of nascent Christianity to such an extent that his imprint is still discernible almost 2000 years later. Universal Orthodoxy within the church was not achieved right out of the gate. Instead, the historical evidence shows that Jesus was almost immediately subjected to competing attempts to interpret him in various ways. Among the many attempts, the Gnostic sects the most vocal they advanced their own Jesuses and thus their own christianities Irenaeus was locked in a battle with them for the definition of authentic christianity from our vantage point today we might be tempted to define the orthodox as the group that was biblical but such an approach wouldn't have worked in the second century since there was not yet an agreed-upon bible It took a while for the Christian church even to recognize that the Bible contained two testaments, much less to offer a precise definition of which books should be included. Although most of the biblical writings were already circulating among the churches, the process of delineating a proper canon still awaited finalization. As we will see, Irenaeus was one of the leading figures in establishing the canon of scripture until this standard was put solidly in place the heretical factions tried to make the scriptures their own it was not that some groups used sacred writings and others avoided them rather the questions were which texts are authoritative? how should they be interpreted by what authority do they speak whose interpretations of them are correct these are the questions Irenaeus was attempting to answer once and for all the way to determine orthodoxy according to Irenaeus was to go back to what the apostles had proclaimed as Christ's own word to achieve this Irenaeus argued for three main things one a universal church whose leaders drew their authority from teaching the same doctrines as the apostles two a universal church whose bible is composed of two testaments written by prophets and apostles and three a universal church whose Bible is interpreted in light of the apostolic preaching summarized in the early statements of belief, instead of by fanciful narratives and cosmic mythology. We will see how Irenaeus used these three concepts to forge a consensus that eventually defeated the many advocates of alternative Christianities. But first, we will examine what we know about the life and times of Irenaeus and about the Gnostic teachings he fought against. As Bishop of Lyon, Irenaeus came to minister in the western part of the Roman Empire. But he was born in the east and retained many points of contact with his native Asia Minor. Though we don't know the exact date of his birth, scholars usually assign a date somewhere around AD 130. He grew up in Smyrna, where Bishop Polycarp of Ignatius of Antioch, presided over the church. It was Polycarp whom Irenaeus remembered as a powerful and formative presence in the early years of his life. Through Polycarp, was a disciple of the Apostle John, the boy Irenaeus felt that he was experiencing a living connection with the apostolic age. Irenaeus sat in rapt attention, listening to Polycarp's holy memories. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of a godly saint As he recalled the Apostle John's recollections about his years spent with Jesus. Such was Irenaeus' boyhood experience. It gave him a deep appreciation for the unbroken continuity of the Christian faith since the time of the Apostles. Eventually, Irenaeus immigrated to Gaul. So, in the same way that missionaries down through the centuries have left their familiar homelands and gone to distant lands, Irenaeus did that too, he was from Asia Minor, but he went to further in the west of the Roman Empire to Gaul, which today is France. A Western mission field far from his home in Asia Minor. Scholars suggest that, while well, on the way, he stayed in Rome for a time, since he later maintained close ties with the Roman church. Could it be that during a stint in Rome, he became familiar with the work of Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers that we looked at, last time. The chronology certainly makes this possible, for Justin was active in Rome at precisely the time Irenaeus would have been there. Irenaeus' writings reveal that he held Justin in high regard and used him as a source of information about heresies. Unfortunately, the exact details of this part of Irenaeus' biography are lost to us. What we do know is that after some time he came to the provincial capital of Lyon, where he described himself as a Resident Among the Celts. Irenaeus was painfully aware of the lack of refined culture in his new surroundings. In one of his works, even apologized for his crude writing style because he had become accustomed to using a barbarous dialect, as he called it. However, it seems the members of his church were probably not of Celtic stock, but were mostly Greek and Roman inhabitants of Lyon. Let's briefly survey the history of this town. Prior to the coming of the Romans, the land we call France had long been populated with pagan Celtic tribes. Julius Caesar had conquered the Gaul in in 52 BC, bringing the defeated Celtic chieftain Resinsterix, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, to Rome in chains. The dungeon where he was held is known as Mamertine prison. It can be visited today as a place where, according to tradition, the apostle uh, Peter, Apostle Peter, was was later imprisoned as well, though in truth that is unlikely. In 43 BC, the new Roman masters in Gaul established a hilltop town called Lugdunum at the confluence of the Rhone and Saone rivers. It soon became the capital of the province and served as the hub of an important road system. I always find it interesting how God, throughout the centuries, has has providentially arranged for roads and, and communication systems and so forth to be used, to be in place for the advancement of the gospel. Though it was in a remote area, Lugdunum's residents had contact with the wider world by traveling down the Rhône to the Mediterranean where some very old Greek seafaring colonies existed at places like Arles and Marseille. Today, ancient Lugdunum is known as Lyon. It is France, France's second largest city, the major center of industry, finance, and French cuisine. Our first historical evidence of Christianity in Gaul comes from a fierce persecution that broke out at Lyon and the nearby town of Vienne in AD 177, around the time that Irenaeus was residing there. The ancient church historian Eusebius has reserved for us the letter that these communities sent to their sister churches back in Asia Minor. Many brave believers from Gaul went to their deaths through horrendous tortures. And the survivors wanted their fellow Christians in other lands to know about such historic testimony for the Lord. Among the martyrs was the slave woman, Blandina, whose frail body made the Christians wonder if she was strong enough to make good her confession. But Blandina put their doubts to rest by enduring the torments and repeating over and over I'm a Christian and there is nothing vile done by us. Remember, all kinds of false accusations were made against Christians in the Roman Empire that they were cannibals, they they practiced cannibalism, that they had uh, orgies, and so forth. All of of these uh, uh, vile uh, accusations were made against Christians. But to her death, uh, Landina kept repeating, I'm a Christian and there's nothing vile done by us. Eventually, Blandina and her comrades were thrown to the wild beasts in the amphitheater of the Three Gauls, whose ruins can still be seen in Leon today. There, even in the midst of her own suffering, Blandina became a spiritual mother to the other Christians as she prayed fervently and inspired them to maintain their own confession. The horrors experienced by these ancient believers can hardly be overestimated. These were the events that happened to Irenaeus' brothers and sisters in Christ. Such were the times in which this pastor lived. The aged bishop of Lyon, Pausinus, also died during the persecution from a harsh eating and the terrible condition inside the prison. When the persecution subsided, Irenaeus was named to take Pausinus' place as bishop. We don't know much about his ministry in Lyon, except that he maintained close ties with the church at Rome. When a delegation was sent to Rome from Gaul with a copy of the letter describing the recent persecution, Irenaeus was appointed as its bearer. It has even been argued that Irenaeus wrote the, the account of the martyrdoms himself. The letter's opening commendation reads, We have requested our brother and comrade Irenaeus to carry this letter to you. And we ask you to hold him in esteem as zealous for the covenant of Christ. The letter goes on to say that if anyone deserves to be held in high regard, certainly Irenaeus is foremost among them. Obviously he was greatly admired by the churches of Lyon and Vienne. Our final glimpse of Irenaeus comes from another fragment of a letter that has survived in Eusebius church history. In a letter to Victor, the Bishop of Rome, Irenaeus urged him not to act rashly in a theological dispute over the date of Easter and the practices associated with it. Victor had attempted to excommunicate the churches of Asia Minor because of their divergent view on these matters. As we would expect, Irenaeus sharply disagreed with this move against the beloved churches of his youth. But instead of laying into Victor, Arias penned a respectful and wise letter, urging him to reconsider his actions. He reminded Victor that Blessed Polycarp had once come from Asia Minor to Rome. At that time, the previous Bishop of Rome had maintained close fellowship with the the respected emissary from the East. Uh, That Bishop's name, by the way, was Anicetus Despite their theological differences, the churches of Rome and Asia Minor had been in full fellowship. Polycarp had even been invited to officiate at the Lord's Supper in Rome. Their doctrinal disputes were not deemed significant enough to break the unity of the whole church. So too, in the present case, Irenaeus insisted the churches should be in harmony with one another and should agree to disagree about some minor questions. Irenaeus comes from the Greek word for peaceful. Eusebius picked up on this, on this meaning with, with his comment that Irenaeus, who was truly well-named became a peacemaker in this matter, exhorting and negotiating on behalf of the peace of the churches. With this final act of peacemaking, we lose sight of Irenaeus in the midst of history. Later tradition asserts that he died as a martyr, but no certain evidence of this exists. Since we know so little of Irenaeus' life, why is he described as a spiritual forefather you should know? It is not because of his biography, but because of the writings he left. Irenaeus bequeathed to later generations two very significant works, which makes him one of the most important theologians of the early church. The first is a old book called Proof of the Apostolic Preaching, in which Irenaeus comments on the basic creed he knew in his day, and defends apostolic doctrine through scriptural exegesis. But most scholars consider Irenaeus' other surviving work to be his most significant. This great five-volume treatise is titled The Detection and Overthrow of What is Falsely Called Knowledge. Today, it usually goes by its shorter name against heresies. Irenaeus viewed these heretics as a deadly threat to the church. Let's take a look at what the Gnostics actually taught. When I discussed uh, Ignatius of Antioch in the first lesson on the church fathers, we learned that the second century Gnostics were vigorous and capable teachers who were propagating their own peculiar views of Jesus Christ. The Orthodox Church Fathers often depicted Simon Magus from Acts 8 as the fountainhead of this heretical trajectory. While the whole Gnostic movement cannot be attributed to this one figure, it is probable that Simon represented a first century form of pseudo-Christian speculation about angelic powers that other heretics taught as well. The Apostle Paul opposed similar Gnostic type beliefs in his epistle to the Colossians. The false teachers in Colossae had embraced human philosophies Jewish legalism, the worship of angels, and asceticism on the premise that the body is evil. These are some of the same features we discover in later, more developed Gnosticism. In contrast, Paul says the true treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found only in Christ, who reconciled all things by the blood of his cross. The writings of the Apostle John also prove that Gnosticizing ideas had gained a strong following in the first century. For example, some deceivers and Antichrist were teaching that Jesus did not come in true flesh, a heresy identified as Docetism. In response, John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching of Christ himself, do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting. The biblical writers had very quickly identified such early Gnostic tendencies as a threat to the faith. While an incipient Gnostic movement can be identified in the New Testament period, it is the second century that saw an explosion of formal Gnostic texts. They grew more organized and their teachers who were often intellectuals grew more sophisticated. In this way, many common people who had initially been drawn toward Christ were being led into error. By Irenaeus' day, the multi-hute conglomerate of Gnostic beliefs had become a potent force that threatened to swamp the Orthodox Church. Irenaeus immediately recognized the danger. At a critical juncture in Church history, he offered his book Against Heresies as the Christian answer. What exactly did the Gnostics believe? Their myths, seem so ridiculous to us today that we can scarcely believe anyone would have ever embraced them. But we must acknowledge that for many ancient people, Gnosticism offered an attractive alternative to Orthodox Christianity. Spiritual seekers were drawn to its seeming intellectualism and mysterious insights into the cosmos. They're just something that's so alluring to people when, when someone says, I know something you don't know. And if you do what I say, you can, you can know these secrets too. Irenaeus records the doctrines of one particular brand of Gnosticism taught by a teacher named Valentinus, or more precisely by his disciple, Ptolemy. The Valentinian Gnostics believed there was a heavenly fullness which produced 30 angelic beings called aeons. The aeons always came in male female pairs. There's a common feature of Gnosticism that divinity consists of both genders so that male aeons require female consorts or counterparts. These conjugal pairs emitted lower aeons. And the last of these emissions was Sophia, wisdom. But Sophia became passionate and wickedly longed for the highest father, apart from her own consort. Though she was eventually healed from her grievous action, she became divided, and her lower self was cast out of the fullness like an aborted fetus. This shapeless being called Sophia Akamoth was sort of a mother goddess who brought forth the the demiurge, or the ignorant creator of the entire physical world in which we live. That's why the Gnostics believed that matter was evil. The physical world was evil. Now, in many accounts, the Demiurge was equated with Yahweh, the Jewish God of the Old Testament, who foolishly thought he was the one true God. Only the enlightened Gnostics knew he was actually a corrupted being far inferior to the goddess Sophia. For the Valentinian Gnostics, there were three kinds of people corresponding to the division of each human body into body, soul, and spirit. All humans are divided into three classes, the physical, the soulish, and the spiritual. The lost physical people of the world are the pagan unbelievers. The soulish people are those like Irenaeus who belong to the Orthodox churches. Although they don't have full gnosis or understanding of the truth, they can reach salvation through good works. The spiritual people, the highest humans, are, of course, the Gnostics themselves, the only true Christians. They do not have to perform good works since their salvation is assured by their own inborn spiritual natures. Therefore, they can engage in certain activities such as attending gladiator games or seducing married women that are off limits to others. The rules of the common believers do not apply to them. So perhaps you now have a a better understanding of why in the New Testament, the the writers in their their epistles talk about false teachers. and, And they also talk about the immorality of the false teachers. That's why false teaching and immorality often went hand in hand. In order to supply secret wisdom to the spiritual Gnostics, a savior aeon called by many uh, Christian sounding names uh, entered the world from above. The Gnostics often said this angel or demigod inhabited the body of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, but his body was not made of real flesh. The ascetic Christ who possessed the illusion of a body came into the world to teach spiritual precepts but only the enlightened Gnostics would be able to comprehend through the purging action of his revealed of this, of this revealed knowledge, and sometimes also through sexual or nuptial uh, rituals that depicted the heavenly unions of the angels. The Gnostics would eventually make their way up to the fullness as purified spirits. The ordinary Christians, however must remain a lesser station. So then what do we discover as the distinctive themes of Gnosticism? First of all, we can easily see how Gnosticism emphasized spiritual elitism. It was a system inherently designed to make distinctions between the more spiritual and the less worthy. We must remember that the Gnostics by no means saw themselves as being outside the church. Rather, they believed they were the most faithful expression of what Christianity was supposed to be. By claiming to have access to truths that no one else had, they enticed fragile Christians from orthodox circles toward their mysterious doctrines. They also taught uh, that they did not have to abide by the moral standards that lesser believers had to obey, eventually the Gnostics separated themselves into competing congregations that claimed superiority over all other Christians. They alone were the elite, the spiritual elite. Another feature of Gnosticism was its lack of historical emphasis. Since salvation came through mystical knowledge, the historical actions of Jesus Christ, which were not even performed in a real body, possessed no importance. In this way, the Gnostics robbed Christianity of what actually is its centerpiece, the saving work of Christ on the cross, and his bodily resurrection from the grave. This is exactly what the apostles had emphasized so clearly. Their preaching centered on the crucified and risen one. Repeating a very ancient summary of the gospel, Paul wrote, I delivered to you as of first importance What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I think it's significant that Twice in that in those two verses we see in accordance with the scriptures in accordance with the scriptures What scriptures was Paul talking about. He was talking about the Old Testament scriptures scriptures that Gnostics don't like because they believe that the God of the Old Testament was a corrupt, a corrupted being. But Paul asserts that the death and resurrection of Christ was according in accordance with the scriptures. Irenaeus recognized that the Gnostics were not telling the same story the apostles had told. So he made their lack of apostolicity a major part of his detection and overthrow of what is falsely called knowledge the whole title of against heresies third the gnostics used a dubious method of biblical interpretation to administer their doctrines they found secret meanings encoded in the pages of the bible for example to reach the sacred number of 30 aeons the Valentinians added up the hours of the day when workers were sent to the fields in the parable of the labors in Matthew chapter 20. Berenice believed that using cryptic symbolism and arcane codes manifestly was not the way the Bible should be interpreted. He compared it to someone who took apart the stones in a mosaic depicting a king, reorganized them into a picture of a fox and then called the fox, the intended production. <laughs> I find that a good a good picture, a good analogy. Only a fool would be carried away by such a methodology. Instead, the believer should interpret scripture in the light of the rule of faith received at baptism. The rule of faith was a synopsis of the earliest Christian gospel that new converts could easily memorize. Essentially the, the precursor to what we now call the Apostles' Creed. As such, the rule served as an accurate summary of Christianity in the form that the apostles had always proclaimed it. This original form of belief about Jesus was notably distinct from what the Gnostics were saying. By referring to the foundational truths in the rule, Orthodox Christian interpreters could make sure they understood the Bible correctly. Are the religious concept of Gnosticism still around today? Absolutely. In Wheaton, Illinois, a place normally normally noted for its evangelical Christianity, a stately brick building serves as the national headquarters of the Theosophical Society. The Theosophical Society is a movement that is stunningly akin to Gnosticism in its search for divine wisdom. The Theosophical Society espouses views that Valentinus could well have endorsed. But modern theosophy is not the only manifestation of Gnostic type belief in America today. There are a number of groups that actually call themselves the Gnostic Church in one form or another, particularly on the West Coast. Just Google the term Gnosticism and see for yourself that the worship of the goddess Sophia is still flourishing in the 21st century, just as she was in the second. Having encountered Gnosticism in detail, Perhaps you have a greater appreciation of the threat it posed to authentic Christianity and why pastors like Irenaeus were so eager to refute it. The church fathers were shepherds of their flocks. So of course they wanted to protect their sheep from spiritual dangers. Earlier I identified three strategies, bishops, canon and creeds, that Irenaeus used to counteract the false doctrines flourishing in his era. Irenaeus argued for a universal church whose leaders drew their authority from teaching the same doctrines as the apostles. For Irenaeus, true Christianity was identical to the earliest preaching of those who had walked and talked with Christ. Irenaeus lived at a time when the christian message was transmitted through oral proclamation as well as through written texts one of the best ways to preserve the gospel message was to follow paul's command in second timothy 2 2 that the truth should be personally entrusted to faithful witnesses who would hand it on to ensuing generations irenaeus taught that the bishop and his council of presbyters elders were the ones entrusted to guard the apostolic deposit of true faith. In contrast, the heretics boldly asserted that they themselves are wiser, not merely than the presbyters, but even the apostles, because they have discovered the unadulterated truth. By emphasizing the apostolicity of the Christian church, Irenaeus essentially declared that he and his fellow believers instead of the Gnostics, represented the original church of Acts in a later generation. While such claims of apostolic succession are more difficult to make today, it was a strategy that worked quite well in the second century. Uh, Secondly, a universal church, whose Bible is composed of two testaments written by prophets and apostles. It may be surprising to learn that Irenaeus was the first person to use the term New Testament to mean what we mean today. A new revelation from God about Jesus Christ contained in a new set of writings. Of course we shouldn't think that Irenaeus had figured out exactly which writings belonged in the biblical collection in his day the boundaries of the church's canon were still being determined nevertheless Irenaeus clearly understood the church to possess authoritative new texts that came from the apostles and therefore contained god-given truth before the time of Irenaeus there was no expressed awareness within the ancient church that the sacred books of Christianity comprised a second body of divinely authorized writings alongside the Jewish scriptures. The earlier fathers certainly possessed books that they revered as holy, but they did not yet speak of them as a well defined Second Testament. The process of determining which books were actually in the canon of scripture was just starting to occur around the time of Irenaeus was pastoring his church in Lyon. For Irenaeus and the other Orthodox writers of his day, the church's reverence for and plain interpretation of the prophetic and apostolic writings was a vital strategy to refute heretical notions. Both testaments were understood to reveal one and the same God who was working out his will for humankind across the ages. Irenaeus perceived what we call the Bible to narrate a single grand story of redemption. Scripture's first part describes the benevolent God who created humans in his image, while its second part tells how the corrupted and fallen image of humankind will be eternally restored in Jesus Christ. Such a cosmic understanding of salvation is one of Irenaeus' most impressive achievements. Third, a universal church whose Bible is interpreted in light of the apostolic preaching is summarized in the early statements of belief instead of by fanciful narratives, cosmic mythology. We've already seen how Irenaeus castigated the Gnostics for tearing apart the mosaic of scripture and re- reassembling it into something foreign. What then was the proper key for biblical interpretation? For the Orthodox Church, the core message of Christianity was conveniently summed up by the rule of faith used to instruct new converts before baptism. This rule of faith provided believers with a synopsis of what the Bible was all about. Certainly, did not contain a bunch of myths about primal aeons. Rather, the rule taught one Creator God, who spoke by the Spirit to the Hebrew prophets. This Father God has been supremely revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, who was incarnate by a virgin for our salvation. The future holds a final resurrection for all, with rewar- rewards for the righteous and punishment for the wicked from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can see that for Irenaeus, the story of salvation was a comprehensive narrative of God's redeeming work in human history. Irenaeus was one of the first patristic fathers to see this big picture. Since I mentioned redemption, we should ask redemption from what? For the Gnostic, for the Gnostics the basic human problem was ignorance. But Irenaeus believed the problem went much deeper. It was one of sin and guilt. Irenaeus was the first Christian theologian to develop the Pauline understanding of the fall of humanity through Adam into utter disobedience. Even borrowed a Pauline term to describe salvation, recapitulation or the summing up of all things in Christ. By this term, the bishop meant many things, but it all came down to this. Salvation history must be centered on the historical Jesus Christ. Whose obedience unto death canceled the work of the Adam. Whereas the first man sinned and so introduced sin into the world, the second Adam lived a perfect life and thereby re- reordered the cosmos the way it was supposed to be. Adam and Eve were intended to grow into a mature holiness, but they failed miserably. And so did everyone after them until at last Christ came into the world and demonstrated flawless obedience to God. When he carried through this obedience all the way to Calvary, and then was raised and exalted to the Father's right hand, it opened up a means for all humans who are joined to the God-man to be exalted as well. Thus, in Irenaeus' doctrine of recapitulation, we discover a comprehensive perspective on the work of God throughout history. Instead of indulging in theosophical speculations, Irenaeus recounted the biblical story, which speaks of creation, degradation, incarnation, redemption, and the final recapitulation of all things through Christ the Lord. This recapitulation idea, Jesus undoing the sin of Adam so that humans can be elevated into God's life by being joined to the perfect and victorious God-man will become an important patristic theme. So many later church fathers followed in Irenaeus' steps. Irenaeus' skirmishes with the Gnostics represented more than just theological squabbling over doctrinal abstractions. Two creation stories, two worldviews, two accounts of humanity's place in the cosmos were battling for supremacy. We cannot consider this debate as something that took place within the church, as if two Slightly different denominations were having a little spat between friends. Yes, both groups were talking about Jesus, but their views of him and what he achieved were so diametrically opposed that it makes no sense to consider them both as a type of Christianity. This was a battle between alternative religions. One based on the empty tomb, the other based on self-knowledge and mystical revelations. Thanks be to God, the Orthodox Christians eventually won the battle. So this was by no means the obvious outcome when Irenaeus first put his pen to the parchment. And yet it was precisely at the time of Irenaeus' monumental against heresies that the tide began to turn. Through strategies that emphasized the apostolic roots of Christianity's leaders and scriptures, Irenaeus became a key architect. Of a unified Christianity that would eventually marginalize all other competing Jesus religions. Never again would Gnosticism pose the threat of becoming the authentic version of genuine Christianity. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have providentially provided the men and women down through the centuries who would remain faithful to you and who would pass on the true Christian faith, who would do battle against all forms of heresy. And we are just so thankful that you have guided them that you have protected us from these heretical ideas that keep popping up down through church history, just relabeled and repackaged the same old tiresome heretical ideas. We thank you that you have provided men like Bob Tuway to alert us to the, the dangers that are out there and the, the many errors that go under the guise of Christianity. They like to wear that label but are actually just repackaged heresy. We thank you for protecting us. And we thank you for the knowledge that you have given us. We ask that you would help us to faithfully share that information that knowledge with those around us about how they can be true Christians following and staying within the true faith that you have provided for us down through the centuries. Thank you for these things in the name of Jesus, amen.